let's go into Isaiah 11. And um, I just, this is a preparation for Christmas because I'm not preaching next week and I'm not preaching. So this is the last message I got until December, which is weird to think about. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some stuff to chew on for until then. So um, I'm going to read a little bit what I've been writing and then I'll, uh, I'll jump into Isaiah 11. We're only going to do verses 1 through 11. So 11 verses, which is enough to take us till dinner. Okay. I'm going to start with a story. So y'all just hang with me. This is going to be funny. This isn't going to make any sense, but y'all just hang with me. So at Christmas, Jordan and I love watching Christmas movies. Y'all like Christmas movies? Yeah, amazing. Hallmark. They're so cheesy and so bad, but they're so good. Like, you know what I mean? Um, Olivia knows that life, right? And Alex. I've thought Alex about this too. I can't put him on blast. He's going to be like, why'd you tell people I watch Hallmark movies? But anyway, so there are certain movies, though, that I love that Jordan is not a huge fan of, okay, right? So Christmas Vacation is one of those. She is not a fan of, I love it. But uh, when there's a night that Jordan is doing something else and I have like some time to watch a movie with myself, I watch one of those movies that she hates that I love. And one of them is a movie called Fred Claus. Has anybody watched that movie? Okay. So the other night I watched this movie. Uh, however, However, I caught something in the movie I've never seen before. And so I'm just going to give you like a quick background of this movie in case you haven't seen it. There's no like, I mean, I guess there is spoilers, but if you haven't seen it, it's an old movie, so, you know, sorry. Um, So let me give you a quick background. Okay. Uh, This movie is about two brothers. The younger brother is Santa Claus, and the older brother is Fred Claus, okay? Fred, of course, lives his entire life in the shadow of his brother, who is Santa. And because of that, he's angry or he's naughty. And, uh, and so he looks, uh, excuse me, despite all of this, he looks after an orphan boy named Sam. Sam was ab- abandoned by his parents. He lives on his own. The world has been super cruel to Sam, but Fred knew that he was really a good kid deep down inside, okay? So after a turn of events, Fred needs $50,000, which he asks his brother Santa or Nick for, and Nick agrees to give him if he comes to the North Pole and helps get Christmas done. Y'all with me? Okay. Nobody said yes, so I'm just assuming everybody's good. All right. Fred agrees and goes, and he's put in charge of the naughty and nice list, of course. But he gets word in the movie that Sam, this boy that he's been looking after, has made the naughty list, the top naughty kid. And the reason is, is because he has started fights in the orphanage that he's in. Okay? Fred gets really angry about this, because he knows that Sam is just a product of events completely outside of his control. He was orphaned, right? But he's angry because Sam is about to be punished for what he's done, even though Fred knows Sam is actually really a good kid. So in anger, Fred then marks every single naughty kid as nice. Y'all remember, you remember this? Okay. So, while all this is happening, all in the background, there's a production expert that has visited the North Pole to shut it down forever due to its inability to keep up with demand. This was finalized by the additional naughty kids that are now nice and are now going to have to get toys. So they couldn't make quota before, and now there's thousands and thousands of extra kids they got to make toys for because they've all been marked nice, and so they're definitely not going to make it, right? So they're definitely going to be shut down. Okay, 
So during a last-minute attempt, last-minute coup to make Christmas a success, this production specialist comes in and shuts the power to the command center, essentially, essentially like thwarting all their efforts. It's right there that Nick, Santa Claus, comes up to him and recounts the year when that man was a kid, and he made the naughty list for starting fights. And in this scene, I've never seen this before, but I just, just let me share this because it's going to make sense in a minute. Um, all that kid, now an adult, but all he wanted then was a Superman cape. That's the only thing he asked for for Christmas. He had been made fun of for wearing glasses, but he thought if he could get a Superman cape like Clark Kent, he could take off his glasses and be a hero and kids wouldn't make fun of him. Okay? He started fights because they teased him. Yet he was judged as the kid who fought rather than the kid whose innocence was stolen by bullies. Right? He started fights, therefore he gets cold. But he started fights because his innocence was stolen, stolen by a bunch of bullies calling him names that he wasn't. Nick apologizes, or yeah, he apologizes, Santa apologizes. He gives him the cape, and, uh, and Christmas is saved, okay? And, and the, quote, the quote that I wrote down was when Santa walks up, he says, there are no naughty kids, okay? Now, you might be wondering what this has to do with anything. This, at the most basic level, represents how we've not only viewed others, but how we think God views others and how we view ourselves. But this Christmas, incarnation story is something completely other than. It's not the story of God coming to drop a lump of coal in our stocking because we aren't on a good list. It's the story of God coming into the madness of our acting out on lost identity to show us what is true. We aren't the ones who start fights. We're the ones who, having been bullied and called what we are not by the enemy, began to act out on it. But Jesus doesn't come to deal with the fighting, so to speak. He comes to deal with the bullying lies from the enemy that we started acting out on, which produced a fight-or-flight response. Jesus didn't come to deal with the fact that Adam and Eve took a bite of a piece of fruit. Jesus came to deal with the thought process that said we have to do something to be like God. I, I feel that in my guts right now. Well, what's the, di the difference is major. Because if Jesus died on the cross for a bite of fruit, the mindset is still there. If Jesus died on the cross as the mindset, oh, by the way, guess what it takes care of also? The bite of the piece of fruit. You are not what you have done. You are what he has done. That's what Christmas is. If the incarnation does not happen, we keep running deeper and deeper into non-existence. That's what Athanasius says. We would keep living the lie until our existence itself became a lie, which a lie does not exist, right? A lie is a measurement of a truth. If I said today that this room is gray, 
that the walls in this room are gray. They are not gray. That's a lie. That doesn't exist. It's not real. However, however, science has proven that you can believe a lie for so long that you actually think it's true. I could, I could sit here week in and week out and tell you why the tone and the color and the lighting affects the color of the walls and tell you this big load of junk until you finally get to the point where you actually start saying, maybe they are gray. How do you prove it? Okay. Do you know how we train dogs? You know how we train dogs? Morgan knows how we train dogs. I don't, but I have studied and researched because I've never had a dog. And here's how you train dogs. Dogs are, are at their core, wild animals. They're animals, right? So if you just take a, dog, take a coyote or take whatever off the, out of the woods, they're going to kill. That's, the, that's their natural nature, right? So what we do to dogs is when they begin as puppies or, you know, if we get them when they're older or whatever, when they begin acting out of their natural nature, we punish them, right? I don't mean to sound harsh, but that's, I mean, that's kind of what it is. We punish them until they start to so suppress their natural nature that their fake nature actually becomes their natural nature. So now, when we go to Morgan's house the other night, me, Jordan, and Veda, we go to Morgan's house, and your dog isn't trying to kill us because it's been trained to not act out on what is natural, right? And so you can so force a false reality down a dog's throat that the false reality becomes the real reality. And it lives its entire life being something that it actually at its core is not. And if a dog can do that, how much more can you and I? We can so live in a false, lie, dark reality that it becomes what is real. And so the church sees that this has become reality for most people. And what we've started doing, not we, what the church has started doing is it has started trying to combat the fake reality in people that has become their real reality. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't go see R-rated movies. Don't go listen to this type of music. Don't go hang out with those types of people. Be in the world, but not of the world. Don't wear those types of clothes. And You know what I mean? And we'll tell people this, and you're like, do this, and 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 do this, because we're trying to combat a fake reality. But the problem is not what people are doing. The problem is, is they've bought into an identity and a reality that isn't natural, but they've so lived in it for so long that it's become natural. So what we need to do is instead of telling people how to cope with their fake reality is we need to tell people what their true reality is, right? And if they live in their true reality, suddenly we don't need to tell them what to do. I don't have to sit around and say, I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I just don't do it. You know why? Because I love my wife. That, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I, don't, I don't have to sit around and think about the Ten Commandments. I, I, don't, I, don't, tell, I don't even know the last time I thought about the Ten Commandments. <gasps> you know what I'm saying? About thou shalt not murder. All right, I, I better not murder today. No, I just don't murder people. You know why? Because I love even my enemies. Or try to. <laughs> not all the time, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, honor your father and mother. That's, I mean, that's one I think a lot of, a lot when you're younger, you absolutely have to honor me. But, but you know what I'm saying? That's just, when, when you know who you are, suddenly, 
I'll just honor my father and mother. I don't need to be told. I don't need to be told to love people. and just love people. Why? Because that's who I am. But you know what I'm saying? So we don't have to have a sermon series on why you should love people. If you can believe that you are what he actually came to show you, you really are, well, you're going to start loving people. That Fred, listen, I know this is like really weird, but Fred in this movie, at no point does he change who he is. He just is who he is, right? But there comes a point in the movie where he realized that all these kids have been given a big lump of coal because of their actions, but he, being somebody who has been naughty, knows that they're not actually what they're doing, right? He lived in the shadow of his brother his whole life, and because of that, he acted out trying to get some attention on him. And sometimes that was bad actions. Most of the time it was bad actions. Sometimes it was good actions. But his whole life was living, acting out on something he didn't have because he lived in the shadow of his brother. And you're telling me that he was judged his entire life because of acting out on that rather than saying, as he's told in the end of the movie, you don't have to live in the shadow of your brother. You're not your brother. So Jesus didn't come to drop big lumps of coal in people's stockings. Jesus came to show us that we are not the person who starts fights. That when the lies come in, or when we start telling ourselves lies, that's not who we are. How do I know who I am? Jesus became flesh to remind us this is who you are. You know what I'm saying? And we've made the cross Jesus coming to pay off either God or the devil. And neither of them, the devil didn't need paying off because he didn't own anything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means nothing is the devil's. So we didn't owe him anything, ever. And God wasn't owed a payment for what? If, if, if it was a payment that he was after, he could have just let us go into oblivion. Why give his son? Because he wasn't after a payment. God didn't need a payment. This is what Paul says. Paul says that Christ died, and while he died, God was reconciling the cosmos to himself, not keeping a debt of their transgressions. There was no debt. So if Jesus didn't come to pay off God, and he didn't come to pay off the devil, what did he come to do? He came to remind us that we're kids of the Most High God, and we've forgotten about it and started living as slaves. We were the son that came home and said, if you'll please just make me a slave so not have something to eat, then I'll be fine. And Jesus came to say, you're not a slave, you're a son. Here's your robe back, here's your ring back, here's your shoes back. Why? Because you're a son. But I squandered everything. It doesn't matter. You're the son. You squandered everything because you believed you were a slave. So I'm here to remind you you're a son. And once you believe and buy into the fact that you're a son, you're not going to squander anything else because everything is yours. You don't got anything to squander. It's all yours. That's why he goes to the older son. And he, the older son said, you never given me a fattened calf. He said, what are you talking about? All my fattened calves are yours. I just said that's so country. Oh. All, all of my fattened calves are yours. If you wanted one, go in the field and get it. It's yours. The son was at home the whole time and didn't believe anything was his, that all was actually his. And so Jesus came to wake up the lost one, and he came to wake up the one who be believed he was found was more lost than the lost ones. And to tell both of them, this is home. Okay. Whew. If the incarnation doesn't happen, we keep going until we don't exist. We keep going into non-existence. We would get what we chose. 
If he doesn't step in, if he doesn't stop the process, we get what we freely chose, which is, in this analogy, coal or death. We get it, right? But the incarnation did happen. And if that means anything, it means that God was not giving us what we chose. He was giving us what he chose. In order to get there, you must first go through the understanding that God wanted you so bad that he actually rejected your choice of death at the expense of taking your choice on himself and dying. In order for us to get to the place where we realize that when we said we choose death, God said no. Do you, do you hear this? When, when Jesus, we're screaming out, give us, crucify him. What we're saying, because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All things exist in and through him. If he doesn't exist, everything, as the early church father says, would disappear. If the son does not exist, nothing exists. Because it all exists in and through and for the son. Right? So when we reject the son, we reject life. And when we reject life, we choose death. We chose death, and God said, absolutely not. (laughs) And when he said, absolutely not, we said, absolutely yes. And he said, no, 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 absolutely not. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the death that you chose. And by taking the death you chose, you get the life that you did not choose. You're going to get the life that I chose. You know what I'm saying? And, and man, okay, okay, okay. In order, in order to get to, in order to place an untainted gift in our stocking, he first had to remove the coal that we put in it. Death. I'm starting out with this because I want this Christmas, I want us to see a story that is much grander and broader and deeper than we have ever been told. That God didn't need the incarnation we did. That God didn't need the cross. We did. God didn't need the blood. We did. God didn't need to change. We did. And how was God being good going to do this? By entering into the madness himself and changing it from the inside out. This is is what Athanasius, I've read this countless times. Athanasius says, he says, when we were heading into non-existent, what was God being good to do? Was he to let us go into non-existence? Certainly not, because if it did, it would show nothing but limitation on the part of God that he couldn't save us. So if he's not going to do that, then what is he going to do? He's going to become it and redeem it. That was Athanasius, one of the early church fathers around 300 AD. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. It's not Jesus came to pour blood over us. It's Jesus came to remind us of who we've always been even before we got the cross. You remember in the Old Testament? Um, Most of y'all don't. So in the Old Testament... There's a lot of shedding of blood. But let me help y'all out. The shedding of blood in the Old Testament was not to fix our sins. Shock, well, huh? Shocker. No, if you go, just go read the Old Testament. 
The shedding of blood was to cleanse the place where God was going to dwell with man, the temple. To deal with our sins, God commanded Aaron to bring a goat. He would place his hands on the head of that goat, and he would confess the sins of Israel over that goat. And do you know what they did with the goat? They didn't slaughter it. They sent it away. And it's called the scapegoat. That's how God dealt with sins in the Old Testament. It's a shocker for y'all because we weren't taught that. Because we were taught that we needed the blood to fix our sins. No, 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 no. No. The blood was shed because God has always wanted to dwell with us. Okay? In the Old Testament, they slaughtered and and blood poured out to cleanse the temple for God to live with man. On the cross, his own blood was poured out so that the veil being torn in the holy place and us becoming the temple of the Most High God, God could dwell with man forever by the earth being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Much bigger, right? So we're trying to escape the place that the blood was shed for him to live in. This is why the incarnate is huge, because in the incarnation, he wasn't coming to just fix us. He was coming to wake us up because there was a spinning reality that we were made for that he refused to live without us in. That was a great spot for naming. That's okay. So first, let me recount a few things before I go into Isaiah 11. First, I want you to remember Genesis 15. Taught on this at Easter. Olivia mentioned it the other night. This is where God shows up. He enters into a blood path covenant with Abram at the time, later Abraham. But in the blood path covenant, just to give you a real cap, real quick recap. So the blood, excuse me, the blood path covenant. God shows up to Moses, uh, no, excuse me, Abram. He shows up to Abram and he says, I want you to get these animals. I want you to cut them in half the blood to spill. If you don't read that story and you don't know what's going on, then you just completely miss what's going on. Abram takes the animals and knows exactly what God is doing. In that day, a marriage covenant was called a blood path covenant. And so what they would do is they would cut the animals. The blood would run down the crack in the, in the ground. And as that happened, the future husband and the father-in-law, the dad of the daughter, going to get married, They would wear white robes, and they would stomp around in this blood, and the blood would get all over the robes. And that was symbolizing the son saying, if if I'm not an honorable husband for your daughter, you can take my life. My blood is on it, okay? And it was the father-in-law saying, awesome, if I don't give you the daughter that I promised, then you can put my life on it. And it was called a blood path covenant. It was a marriage covenant, right? So when God in Genesis 15 tells Abram to go get these animals, Abram knows exactly what he's doing. He's setting up a marriage covenant on a blood path. But something happens at the end of that story that we completely miss. Abram falls asleep. He has the dream of what's going to happen in Egypt and his people coming out and the whole thing. And he wakes up. And when he wakes up, he sees a smoking fire pot and a torch. It's a torch, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, a, A smoking fire pot and a torch. Two presences coming across this blood path. Why is that significant? Because in a, in a normal marriage covenant, 
there would be one sod, and then there would be, if you're Abram, you. So it should have been God coming across, and then Abram coming across. But Abram wakes up, and he sees two presences coming across this blood path. And it's smoke, and it's fire. Where do we see that all through Scripture? The presence of God, right? What is God doing? He's telling Abram, I'm entering into a marriage covenant with you, but I'm going to put my life on the line for my side and your side. Okay, okay, okay. This is key. This is key. By God taking both sides, Abram could do absolutely nothing to absolve it, even in great disobedience. The covenant was not based on Abram's faithfulness to God. It was based on God's faithfulness to Abram. Then in Genesis 22, God asked Abram, or Abraham at that point, he asked Abraham to kill his promised son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. This is after that covenant, right? And I said this a little bit last week. He does it. And he does it to show Abraham that not, excuse me, He does not do this to show Abraham that he needed more faith because the covenant wasn't based on his faith. He doesn't go to Abraham and say, I need you to kill Isaac. And by doing this, I'm going to see if you actually got enough faith to stick this thing out. That's what we've all been told, right? That's what we were taught. That Abraham, he went up to that mountain and he was going to kill Isaac and the angel stopped him and said, the test is complete, like a video game. Like you have passed this level, faith leveled up. That's, that's what we've talked. No, 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 no. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans with all these foreign gods. So Abraham knew that when God came to ask for his son as a sacrifice, this is okay. This is what I'm used to. This is what everybody does. So he takes Isaac to the mountain. He's got wood on his back. Sound familiar? Carries him up. The wood that he's going to die on is on Isaac's back. Carries it up the mountain. When he gets to the mountain, Abraham sets everything up and he goes to kill him. And God shows up and says, stop. And Abraham's got to be like, what do you mean stop? And the Lord steps in and says, no, 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 no. This is not about your son dying. It's about mine. This covenant is not based on your faithfulness. It's be- he took Abraham to that mountain to show him God is not like the other gods. It wasn't to show him that he had enough faith. It was to show him that God had enough faith for both of them. Okay, so God, uh, when, when God uh, does this, he tells Abraham to do it, to ultimately say that he was going to satisfy what he initiated in Genesis 15. He says, I am responsible for this covenant. If you need to kill to prove it, I'll provide. This is on me. And if you've got to kill something in order to see that this is on me, I'll provide the ram in the thicket. And you can murder him all you want. But three days later, he's going to rise up and you're going to see who you really are. If that's what you need, I'll provide. But it's not going to be yours. I mean, you hear this? God's saying, I reject Isaac. He, when he, I, 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 don't, I can't prove this. I believe if the Lord had gone to Abraham and said, I want you to kill Isaac, and Abraham say, absolutely not, the Lord would have said, good job. 
takes him up. And when, when Abraham says, this makes sense, Isaac, you're going to die because this is what the gods require. God steps in and says, no. This is the story from the beginning. Not of our faithfulness, but of God's. We mess up, not when we are unfaithful in our works, but when we believe it's our faithfulness rather than God's that upholds us in this covenant. Our faithfulness does not uphold it. Therefore, we can enjoy and receive what comes from his faithfulness. And I've used this before, this example. And then we'll go to Isaiah 11. I have some other stuff in here, but I'm, I'm going to skip that and jump to Isaiah 11. Ve- our daughter, Veda, she never questions whether or not she's our daughter. And because of that, she can live and she can take risks and she can do things knowing not. She doesn't think, if I do this, I'm going to be in trouble, right? At least I don't think she thinks like that. She shouldn't. The way she thinks is, if I do this and it doesn't work out, mom and dad will save it. If I take this risk, if I go backwards on this roller coaster and I fall, mom and dad are not going to punish me. They're going to fix the wounds. And so she's free to live because she's not expecting wrath from us. She's expecting Love. And sometimes that love comes with discipline, but she doesn't see the discipline. She sees the love behind the discipline. So even when we do have to discipline, she doesn't hear that and say, well, man, I I hope that they don't kick me out of this family. She doesn't say that. She says, I'm a part of this family, so this discipline makes absolute sense. There's never a question. It's never a question of who we are or whose we are. It's never that. It's a question of whether or not we're convinced of the only reality. And the only reality is this happened so that you and I could be sons and daughters of the Most High God forever. Not based on our faithfulness, based on His faithfulness. Not based on us saving ourselves, based on him having saved us. Right? I don't, need to make the, I don't need to make Jesus Lord of my life because I'm not in an authority to make Jesus Lord of my life. That would mean I have to be in more authority than him in order to make him something. Right? No, I need to wake up and realize that he is the Lord of my life. Not make him wake up and realize whether or not I choose it, he's the Lord of my life. How is that? Because Paul said on the cross, he led things out of the dead, of the realm of the dead, like a parade. And he paraded around dark forces and enemies and uh, demons like they were just absolute, like it was fun. Paul says, he paraded them out in complete victory on the cross. I mean, something happened in the Messiah that was way bigger and way grander than anything we've ever thought. Yeah, I I mean, I told somebody the other day, I said, did Jesus defeat death? Yes, he did, absolutely. Then what death is waiting? Because all we talk about is death. 
We're trying to get people saved so that when they die, they'll know where they go. I'm trying to get people to wake up and realize they're here and now, and new creation and resurrection life is here and now. Right? Who, like, if you're living to die, you'll never live. There's a lot of people who died years ago that are still breathing. Okay, I'm about to preach a whole other message. All right. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11. Let me just read it through verse 11, and then I'm going to just talk a little bit about it. Verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots, excuse me, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is the NIV. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness or rightness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Wait till I show you the Hebrew of verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Okay? Now, as I'm reading this, I just want you to think through some of this stuff, okay? Okay? He's going to strike the earth. What's he going to strike the earth, the, the earth with? The rod of his mouth? Okay? And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together... Or another translation in the Greek says the calf and the lion will feed together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down to, their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. Which is really interesting because normally the lion would eat the ox. Now he's eating what the ox is eating. Just, just hang here. Just hang with me. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that is not a verse about snake handling as much as people want to make it that. All right. Lord help us. Somewhere in the backwoods of Kentucky today, somebody's handling a snake and getting bit. Verse 10. And that's legit. In that day... The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Okay? I'm going to stop at verse 10. I'm going to stop at verse 10. Because verse 11, I'll have to do a lot more explaining, so we'll continue that a little bit later. I'm going to stop at verse 10. Romans 15, uh, verse 12. Paul uses this verse, verse 10, right here in Isaiah 11. He uses that verse as his argument to why the Lord brought ministry to the Gentiles. If you go read Romans 15, verse 12, he uses this verse to support why he's doing ministry to the Gentiles now rather than just the Jews. Okay? So, let me, let me just break down a couple of things here. Verse 1, okay, which is where the shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. It's very similar to the wording of Isaiah 6.13 that says, As a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so that stump will be the holy seed in the land. Very similar language. 
The utterly cut down and fallen tree, Isaiah is saying, would, would be nothing less than the place for the new branch to sprout. And this branch will be bearing fruit. If you look ahead to John 15, we see Jesus say, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me and you'll bear fruit. Okay? So the, the shoot coming out of Jesse is the Messiah and the fruit that it's bearing is you and I. Awesome. Remember, in Genesis 15, God took responsibility for the covenant on behalf of himself and us, which means if we fail, he fails. Therefore, the place where we have seemingly died, this cut-down stump, is actually the place where God steps in on our behalf, incarnation, to uphold our end that was once cut down. This is what he's saying. Remember, because God took responsibility for our side. I think if we could process Genesis 15 correctly, it would take care of all of our other misunderstandings in Scripture. That, that God is saying, essentially, Abraham, when you fail, because Abraham falls asleep, and vultures start coming in to take these cut pieces, which means that Abraham had been sitting there for a long time. Why was he sitting there for a long time? Because the Jewish scholars, the Midrashes, said that in that place, Abraham realizes, holy cow, I can't be in a covenant with God. God never fails, but I fell a lot, and I'm going to die. I can't walk over that blood path because in a few days I'll be gone. So he falls asleep contemplating this. And when he wakes up, he sees both presences. It's the Lord saying, Abraham, I know you're going to fail. And when you fail, I'm going to take it on myself. And me taking it on myself means you live. Okay? So remember that. Remember that. So Isaiah says, the shoot will come from the stump, the cut down tree. And from his roots, a branch will begin to bear fruit. We cut the tree down to the stump, and the Lord says, right there is the holy seed. So even in our worst, all we did was reveal the holy seed. I mean, it... Israel has rejected and rejected and rejected. And when they get all the way down to where Israel has been cut off, like they've been exiled from the land. When they get all the way down to that bottom, they find something they didn't see. And it's not disappointment. It's Jesus. Okay. In verse 2, Isaiah is pointing out the unique relationship between this man and the Spirit. Okay, it's just a really amazing verse. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Verse 3 says, He will judge by what he sees with his eyes and hears with his ears. Okay, This man, Jesus, is coming to judge and see from a different perspective. We judge by what we see. This man knows what is right. Okay? Let me just read this one more time. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with rightness or righteousness, he will judge, and with justice, give decisions. Righteousness and justice, okay? 
He will not judge by what he sees or what he hears. He will judge by righteousness and justice. Okay? So we judge by what we see and what we hear and what we know people are doing. He judges by what he knows is right. Very, I mean, so different, okay? The, the word right there is um, sedek, sedek, and the word means, like I said, rightness, being right, okay? And, uh, and the other translation could be level. It could be upright, okay? So right there when it says... Um, with rightness he will, or righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. That word is mishor, and it it's literally means upright as well. So very similar, okay? So uh, let me make sure I'm hitting this. Okay, he will judge by what is right and by what is upright. He'll have a way of seeing us in that and will judge or govern everyone from what he knows to be true about them, not the lie of what he sees and hears from them. Back, back when, uh, in, in the, around the early century, the rabbis would, uh, they didn't have the Bible. Like, they didn't have the printing press. Nobody carried a Bible around with them, and they sure didn't have iPhones. So, um, back then, the synagogue would have had certain scrolls, and they would have been handwritten text. So it would have been the Torah, it would have been Isaiah, Jeremiah, different texts, okay? And so what would happen is, is on the Sabbath, which would be a Saturday, but on the Sabbath, they would all come in, they would take this scroll, the rabbi would take this scroll, open it up, he would read a section. How, how we do it, and it isn't wrong, but it is different. How we do it is, is we, like, so for example, me, read stuff and then we'll tell people how to process it in a sermon, and then everybody will go home. That's the end. What the rabbis would do is they would read a text. They would initiate certain lines of thinking about that text, and then the rest of the service would initiate conversations. And so Uncle Joe would say, well, this is, this is what I'm thinking about this text. And then somebody else would say, well, actually, this is kind of what I'm thinking about this text. And it was never a that's right and that's wrong because in the Hebrew, there's a thousand different things that are right in this one text. That's the Hebrew language, okay? And I'm about to show you one of them. But it, wouldn't be that, it would be, this is what the Holy Spirit is showing the body, and all together, we're going to take all of these thoughts, and we're going to go home. And what you got at the synagogue initiated the conversation that you would have with friends and family and neighbors throughout the rest of the week. You know what I mean? You know, I've been thinking about Isaiah 11.1, and this is kind of what I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And it was just, you know what I'm saying? And it was never a, no, 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 that's right and that's wrong. It was always a back and forth, a discussion, flow, and the rabbi would step in, and he would almost be the guards. So if anything got too far out or too far, he would be the one to step in and say, well, you know, that's, that's really awesome, but maybe go in this direction. But it was this never-ending, ever-flowing conversation. It's a lot of what we do on Tuesday nights, right? And, um, but I really want to get a lot better at this because this is huge. Because when you read a text, if all you've ever known is one person's opinion from a, from a whatever denomination you grew up in background, then like we're going to miss a lot of stuff that this is saying. If all you know is what I say about what this is saying, we're going to miss a lot. 
So what I hope is that you never hear, this is what I need to think about this. I hope every single time you come in here, you hear, that is a great way of thinking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure it out on my own too. I, wanna, I don't want to teach you what to think. I want to teach you how to think for yourself, right? And so as I'm going through this, what I really want to do today, preparing for Christmas, is just, just stoke some what if this could go in this direction, Okay. And of course, I've done the study, so I know it absolutely does. But what I want to do is just like, I want to, I want to poke that in you, okay? Y'all good? So I'm, I'm not too far from, from being over. Um, the, uh, the word needy right here in verse 4 is the word, it means weak, actually. It means weak, okay? And the word poor means, check this out, check this out. It, it comes from the word anah. The root of this word, translated poor, comes from the root word, ana. The word ana means defiled. The word for poor means afflicted. Okay? So, they are afflicted because they've been defiled. Their original self has been afflicted by something foreign. Which is why we need a Messiah to not judge by what we have bought into, but to know what is right and judge us by what he, not us, knows is right. This is what Isaiah say, okay? So let me hit the back half of verse 4, because the Hebrew says something very interesting that is very different than what the NIV says. So um, let, me, let me just hit this. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. See there? Right? Okay. Now, take that verse. Let me read you another verse. Romans 5. While we were still... Let me, let me, no, 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 no. Let me just read it. I'm not going to quote it. Some of you are going to say I didn't quote the exact words. Check this out. You see, at just the right time... When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He will strike the earth with the, rock, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Paul said that at the right time, when we were still wicked, Christ died on our behalf. And dying on our behalf gave us life. Huh. So, either Paul is wrong, or the Hebrew here is telling us something different than what's on the surface. And let me help you. Paul's not wrong. Okay? So, here's what the Hebrew says. He will strike the earth with the rod. That word rod is staff, like as in a shepherd's staff. Okay? With the staff of his mouth. Who is, for us, the enemy intruder? The enemy intruder for you and I is that which threatens God's sheep. Who are God's sheep? His kids. Who are God's kids? You and I. Okay? So, he will strike the earth with the shepherding rod of his mouth. Of his mouth. The, the word for, right here for rod is also the word used for tribes. As in when the, when the Old Testament talks about the tribes of Israel, that's the word it uses. Really interesting. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Check this out. The word breath is ruach. If you know anything about the scriptures, that is the word for holy 
spirit. Okay? Holy breath. Holy wind. The word ruach means wind, breath, or spirit. This is the word in Genesis 3, 8. The phrase, the cool of the day, is the word ruach. So now, now, I'm not going to chase this rabbit, but how different is this? We say, walk in the cool of the day. Man, it must have been early morning. No, no, no. This is, this is why we need different translations. God is telling them they're walking in the Ruach. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit. They're not, so they're not just moseying, moseying around the cool of the day. They're walking in the Spirit. Okay, so go back and read Genesis a little different, okay? And y'all thought it was just cold. Y'all thought it was a cold front. <laughs> The word slay is the Hebrew word muth, muth. And it's the word used in Genesis 2.17 where God says, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. You will surely die is the word muth. Same word. But they didn't die. Right? They, They bit of the tree they were told not to bite of. And they were told, if you bite of this tree, you will die. They bit of the tree and then lived centuries. They did not die. Okay? Something did die, though. Something within died or lied, which was their original purpose. But just to be clear, they did live a long time and enjoyed the presence of God. A couple of generations later, Enoch is in such intimacy with God that God just takes him. So not only did they not die, they were intimate with God. In fact, there's a lot of scholars that believe that the relationship and presence they walked in in the garden didn't change. It was just that they weren't in the garden anymore. Well, how do you know that? Because of Enoch. You know what I'm saying? Are y'all with me? Okay. So that's the word used for slay. Really interesting. The word for wicked is the Hebrew word for ungodly or not godly. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. So it's the it's the Hebrew word for ungodly, right? And this is what Paul says in reference to the ungodly. Paul says that at the right time when we were still powerless, when we were still ungodly, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners and ungodly, Christ died for us. So we've got to reconcile this. We've got to reconcile what Jesus actually did and what we think Isaiah is actually saying. Right? Y'all good? Is this too much? Okay. Y'all lie. At just the right time, he died for the ungodly. This is huge. He will strike the earth with the rod, shepherding rod of his mouth, of his words. Right? The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Is that talking about the Bible? Well, here's one issue with that. The Bible in the New Testament wasn't written when that verse was written down. They didn't have a New Testament. 
So when, when he says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, he's not talking about what uh, Peter had to say about the apocalypse. He's talking about the word, Yeshua, Jesus. Okay? So he's going to strike the earth with his mouth, the, rod, the shepherding rod of his teaching. The Lord is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice. And with the breath, with the Holy Spirit, he will slay what is ungodly. Which he absolutely did when he died on the cross and he ripped out of us what was ungodly. And he did that by way of the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my, even in the presence of my enemies, I fear nothing. Why? Because you're with me. You're my shepherd. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Okay? So, I'm going to bring all this together. I'm going to bring all this together. Verses 6 through 11. Eusebius of Caesarea, which was one of the early church fathers in 339 AD, had this to say about verse 6. Okay? The wolf will lie down with the lamb or will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf with the lion, and the little child will lead them. This is what he said. 339 AD, Eusebius of Caesarea. He said this. Isaiah continues here prophetically to show the transformation of all different races of humanity, barbarian and Greek, through the teaching of Christ. There it is. The irrational animals and wild beasts in this passage represents the Gentiles, you and I, who are naturally like animals. That's how the Jews saw them. One who comes from the seed of Jesse, a Jew, will rule over the Gentiles. This is the genealogy of our Savior and Lord in whom the Gentiles now believe and have hope. Okay, this is what he said. So the Hebrew scriptures have so much depth. Just talked about that. It's a poetic language. It's not a horizontal language, but a vertical language with depth. I've heard it said before that you read it, the Hebrew scriptures, and then you let it read you. So Isaiah is symbolizing many things when he's talking about the wolf laying down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf, the yearling, the uh, lion, and the ox. When he's talking about these, he's talking about many different things, but I'm going to focus on two of them. He is absolutely talking about Jew and Gentile. Absolutely. But then there's another layer to this that Isaiah is getting at which is a level that not only affects the Gentiles, but affects the Jews too, which is the two natures within everyone. Y'all with me? So, Gentile and Jew brought back by this child that's leading them. Of course, the child is Jesus, right? But not only that, the two natures within you are brought back in harmony with how they were supposed to be because of the child leading us. Okay, Notice in this passage, notice this, that in every example, the wild killer animal is tamed as it lies with an animal it would normally maul to pieces. 
The wolf will live with the lamb. The wolf would normally slaughter the lamb. Right? The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion will eat together, will feed together. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down and live together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. All of those would kill each other, or one, the one would kill the other, right? But Isaiah is giving us a picture where there is no killer instinct anymore in any of the animals, that both are living in peace. The animal hasn't changed. You ready? It's been brought back to how it originally was. In the garden, a wolf was not killing a lamb. That wasn't until Adam and Eve began to be the first fruits of the delusion for all creation. But what the little child was coming to do, to not bring in something brand new, but to bring in something that was new, which is original design. And in that, the wolf will lay down its killer instinct that came by way of a fallen creation, as we call it, And he will pick back up what was original, which is peace. This is a restoration to harmony and peace in the world, Jew and Gentile within. Okay? Isaiah 9 says, and I quote this, I feel like every message, but it says, Of the increase of his government and what? Peace there will be no end. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love him with all your hearts and with all your soul and live. Just one more time. Y'all didn't get that one. This is Deuteronomy. He gave them the command for circumcision, but they made circumcision something that you do in order to be in the covenant. And God gave them the circumcision just to mark them off to be a prophetic statement for what his people were going to be as marked off after this. That's all. So Moses, as he's getting to the end of his life, one of the last things he says is, the Lord your God's going to do some circumcision, but it's not going to be of your outside. The Lord will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. Why? so that you will love him with all of your hearts, with all of your soul, and what? Live. This is what Isaiah is speaking to. Look at chapter 11 so far. Can I give you my just quick translation of this? Um, Thanks. So this is my power phrase of it. If you don't like it, it ain't published, so that's fine. Here we go. So this is what Isaiah 1 through 11, if I had to paraphrase it in my own words, this would be it. But I think this will help us. Out of the roots of the cut down stump of Jesse, a fruitful branch will grow. He will be completely filled and led by the Holy Spirit and carry the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, and will find joy in the fear and awe of the Lord. He won't judge people externally by what they do say or look like, but he will judge the weak ones by what he knows to be true. And he will give up right fairness 
to those who have been afflicted and defiled by a foreign enemy. He will strike the land with his shepherding rod of his teaching and will put an end to what is ungodly by breathing the spirit and breath of God that rest on him on the ungodliness. His kingly attire, and I haven't even read this yet, but his kingly attire is righteousness and faithfulness. It's who he is. The result of his kingly rule in which he restores what and who he knows to be true and puts an end to the ungodly reality that we have attached ourselves to will be the violent nature restored to peace and harmony and the once excluded people included in original oneness. How will this happen? A child will lead them. This child, verse 8, will play in the cobra's den and put his hand in the viper's nest. They won't harm and kill him. He will end them. Nothing will harm or, or destroy, both without and within, in this new creation reality brought forth in this child. For the creation will be filled to completion with the intimate and experienced understanding of how God sees things. Now, check this out. Y'all ready for this? Let me finish this up a little bit. <clears throat> Verse 9. Uh, they will neither harm nor destroy. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 says this. Colossians quotes Habakkuk later on in uh, Colossians 1.27. Habakkuk says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the one I quote all the time. But Isaiah here says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That word knowledge, check this out, is the word, and if I can find it, I just lost it. There it is. The word knowledge here is the word dea in Hebrew, dea. And it's from the word yada. The word yada means intimate knowledge, okay? So when you get married, the night of your wedding, you know your spouse, okay? That's what yada means. All right, not to be weird. But this word comes from that, but it's different. And it's only used, if I remember this right, I didn't write this down, but if I remember this correctly, it's only used here in the entire Old Testament. Don't quote me on that, but this variation is very unique to this verse, okay? And it says, uh, the creation will be filled with the knowledge. That word dea is God knowledge or how God sees things. But it's from yada. So you know how God sees things because you've been intimate with and experienced God himself. The word became flesh and dwelt in us. So, the earth, remember, we just talked about him judging by what's right He's going to bring this rod of teaching with the Holy Spirit. He's going to slay what is ungodly, particularly within his people. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. That's king. Kings would wear uh, golden belts with, um, with pearl, not pearls, with um, different uh, gems around it. And that's how you know they were the king. When you saw it was a kingly belt. Isaiah is saying this kingly belt will be made of righteousness and it will be made with faithfulness. 
Okay? So it, that's his kingly belt. Then he goes through and talks about the wolf lying down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, blah, 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 blah. And then when he gets to the end of that section, he says, after all of this, because of all of this, the earth will be filled with how God sees things because they've experienced God through this child, and it'll be filled, not just a little bit. It'll be so full, it'll be as natural for it to know how God sees things as water is wet. And Isaiah said this way before Jesus came onto the scene, and we've still not seen that happen yet. We've seen it close, but the earth has not been completely filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea yet. But, but I'm telling you, if I'm going to give my life for anything, I'm going to make sure the earth knows exactly how God sees things. Not how a denomination sees things, not how a superstar pastor sees things, not how Oprah sees things, not how CNN or Fox News sees things. I want us to be filled with the knowledge, with the understanding that God has towards us, which is not judging by what he sees and not judging by what he hears, but what he knows is right. Righteousness. You know, what if we took the past two years of just bam, bam, against each other, and we stop judging people by what we've seen or what we've heard or what we've been told, and we instead judge by what you and I absolutely know is right. We know what's right. What's right? Jesus, the Word. Jesus is right. We know what it is, right? And so instead of, I love what C. Baxter Kruger said to me a couple weeks ago. He said, we need to take all the questions we have about anything. We need to take them to Jesus. We need to write them down. And we need to say, Jesus, be my rabbi and show me these answers. What, what if the past two years, we took all of our questions, we laid them at the feet of Jesus and said, I'm going to walk with you, rabbi, until you show me what this is. But we didn't do that. Instead, we started shooting at each other because it was fun, and that's what we do, and that's what we do on social media, right? And here we are two years later, and we are not just no closer than we were two years ago. We, we realized how far off we were two years ago that we didn't even know, right? So some of these older churches that barely hanging on got into COVID times, and it was like, we weren't just barely hanging on. We died, we were on life, we were on a ventilator. And it was breathing and it was breathing and it was breathing. But during this past two years, somebody pulled the plug and we did not make it. And you know what I'm saying? And then you've got other people who went through this past two years, and, and I'm not saying this bragging, but like it was a struggle for us. But this past two years, the Lord has shown us things I don't know if we could have ever seen had it not been for the past two years. You see the difference there? The difference is, is there is a group of people, and it's not just us, but there's a group of people that are being filled with the, under, with the understanding and perspective of how God sees things, and we're beginning to live out of the way that God sees things. And we're knowing how God sees things based on an intimate experience with Him. I'm almost done. Matt, will you come up here? Thank you. Oh, man. I didn't tell you all this in the beginning. This is the longest message I've ever written. It was 11 pages, um, but I, I didn't tell you all that in the beginning because then you wouldn't pay attention, but I'm, I'm, I'm at the end, so <laughs> verse 10, let me end with verse 10, verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for, and I, I hate this word, the peoples, 
such a, was such a weird word. It's right. Um, the word rally in the Hebrew is the word to seek. Okay? So, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will seek him. Okay? Uh, the word for the peoples is the Hebrew am, and it literally means all people, every people. That's what that means. Okay? So, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for every people or for all people. The nations will seek him. That's what it says. The word for nations is the word Goya, Goya, um, which I'm pretty sure there's like a cheese brand that's that in there. Or, uh, yeah, yeah, canned foods. That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. Um, maybe they got it from this. Um, that word literally means not just nation. It means every nation, specifically every nation. So all people, every nation, okay? And then the word resting place, is that where I, yeah. The word resting place is the Hebrew word menuah, menuah, and it means permanent place. Okay? So, in that day, what day? Our day. Jesus' day. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all people. Every nation will seek him. And his permanent place will be glorious. What's his permanent place? I could argue right now, it's you and I. And one of these days, the permanent place he has found within the temple of you and I is going to so explode in creation that it's going to be called new creation. And it's going to be so full of life that the dead are going to start waking up. This is it. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, that all of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for what? You and I to wake up. Because if you and I will wake up that we're sons and daughters, it will wake up that it is full of this knowledge of how God sees things and how God sees things is the killer nature and the peaceful nature being brought back into harmony where they live together. It doesn't change. He doesn't kill the lion. He doesn't kill the wolf. He brings the lion and the wolf back into how it was designed. You see what I'm saying? So when we talk about God coming to, to judge the earth, what we're saying is we want God to remove all the bad people. What God sees as judgment is God coming to bring all the bad stuff back into how it originally was before it bought into a lie that made it bad. So, so we have hope. We, Hebrews says, we have this hope and it is an anchor for our soul. That's what Hebrews says. So let me sum up this, this whole message. Number one. Religion was not a thing in the ancient world. That, that wasn't a thing like it is today. It was people groups and culture. So when we see Jews in Scripture, it's not just some Jews in a Jewish religion. It's all who have been born Jewish. Those are the Jews. It's the Jews. Right? And when you see Gentiles in Scripture, it's not just some Gentiles or some groups of Gentiles. It's all who are not Jews. The Gentiles are simply the ones who aren't Jews. So everybody in this room, unless you were born into a Jewish family, you are a Gentile, right? But, but when it's writing about the Gentiles, it's not saying certain groups and certain ones and certain individuals. It's saying Gentiles, right? There was no religion in the ancient world like we have it today. 
Israel was not anticipating a Messiah to bring a new religion. They were, as we see in Isaiah, anticipating a Messiah who would put the cosmos right again. They weren't waiting around for a new religion because Jew, being Jewish is, meant, is getting old. Man, following this law? We don't even like that anymore. No, they love following the law. When Jesus comes and Paul starts teaching, he doesn't tell them, stop following the law. He says, don't put your faith and salvation in the law. But them following the law was just an act of worship for them. They enjoy doing it. Paul says, go ahead, right ahead and do it. That's not your salvation, but go, go do it. They were sitting around saying, man, I'm so sick of not murdering. If we just need a Messiah to come so I can have forgiveness when I do murder. No, they weren't waiting around for another religion. They were waiting for a Messiah who would come into their cosmos and say, I know what you are. And I'm going to bring you back to how you were. That, that's what they were waiting for. And, and Jesus absolutely initiated that. And if you don't see the first two things I just said correctly, then you'll read the story of Jesus as the story of a new, highly exclusive, highly anti-cosmos, highly anti-non-evangelical Southern American West religion called Christianity. And you'll read that right into the story of Jesus. No, Jesus rejected religion and the religious leaders so vehemently because their exclusive club of fake alikes were hindering his purpose of restoring the cosmos and everything in it back into how it was. They, why was Jesus so against the Pharisees? They were, I mean, they were on God's side. They didn't think he came from God, but the reason they didn't think he came from God was because they so studied the scripture. It wasn't like they were, you know, going around uh, pimping out the gospel even though I guess at the core level, I guess they kind of were. But, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they gave their lives for Yahweh. And they rejected Jesus because they were so protective of this. It was almost like the Pharisees rejected Jesus because, you know, some of you reject people who love you because you've had bad experiences in the past. And you say, if I let somebody love me, then they're probably going to hurt me at some point. So I'd rather just shut everybody else out. Y'all got real quiet right? That's what we do. So it's almost like the Pharisees say, we've been through Greek oppression, Roman oppression, Babylonian oppression, Assyrian oppression, every other oppression. And yes, because of what we've done, but don't give us some fake hope. Jesus, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to fix everything. No, 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 no. We've seen this story play out. So they're rejecting Jesus on the grounds of don't come don't don't tell me this is all going to be okay and it's not going to be okay because they're so devout to God now they were absolutely wrong and they were absolutely fakers just like a lot of us but Jesus so rejects religion because their exclusivity hindered his purpose of inclusivity of Gentiles and prostitutes and tax collectors and the poor and the needy and the sick and everybody else rejected by religion. 
you telling people they're not welcome is hindering my message of telling them they're absolutely welcome. In fact, this is home. So he rejects religion because he's coming to bring something that is absolutely not another religion, that we have made another religion. This Christmas, as we're preparing our hearts, because I know it's not Christmas season. For us, it is. For me, it is. But I know it's not Christmas season yet. I know we got Thanksgiving. But, but we're in this stage right now of preparing for Christmas coming up, right? And this Christmas, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the incarnation, we need, let's anticipate the cosmic implications of Jesus fulfilling what the people of old foresaw. Last, um, that's it. Isaiah 2, 12, the next chapter. Let me read verse 2. Isaiah says, Surely God is my salvation. Uh oh. <laughs> what? I thought the prayer was, I thought death was. <laughs> Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength, my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The the, the, uh, if we could go into Christmas this year with about this much of an anticipation for years, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites sat around and said, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the year. While Greek is killing them, while Rome is killing them, while they're losing everything they got, while their land, the promised land, this is God's land, is being invaded and the temple is being desecrated, and there's male prostitutes and shrines, I mean, all over the place. While all this is happening, they're sitting around year after year. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the time. Hundreds of years. N.T. Wright has a book called Paul, a Biography. Really good. I'm almost, well, I'm like 10% of the way into it. I'm, I about said I'm almost done with it. I'm not, but about 10% of the way. Um, Maybe 15, 16%, anyway. And, um, but N.T. Wright teaches, and I think I mentioned this last week, but just to, just to summarize as we close up, that in the ancient world, hope was not like what hope is for us today, as a lot of things weren't like it is for us today. But today, hope is um, if you're, you're, you get a good job that you like, and it's a good pay, and uh, you have a good house, and you're in a good relationship, and things are looking up. You got hope. I'm just, man, I'm just feeling hopeful right now. And then the minute that stuff crashes down, suddenly you don't got hope anymore, right? So our hope is defensive. Our hope is reactive. So based on what's going on around us, we either have hope or we don't have hope, right? Which even just saying that should be like, wait, wait, that's down way off, okay? But in the ancient world, hope was not something that is a reaction. Hope was a choice. So for the Israelites to say we have hope, what they're saying is, is we choose to see this as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Micah and all the other prophets prophesied. 
We choose to see this as God bringing good. We choose to see this as God at the right time sending the Messiah to save us. We hope it's this year. We hope it's in the next few weeks. But we choose to see that it doesn't matter what happens to us. No matter what country comes in and invades, no matter what foreign thought process or foreign enemy comes in and, and, uh, and puts us in slavery or kicks our way of life out, no matter what happens, we choose to see this as God sees this, not as we think we want to see this. That was hope. So before Jesus comes onto the scene, for hundreds of years, the Israelites, the Jews, are making the decision, we choose to see a Messiah is coming. And then that generation would die. The next generation, we choose to see a Messiah is coming. Die, generation, die, generation, die. And then Zechariah walks into the temple after four hundred years of nothing. Bless you. Right? And Zachariah is saying, man, I, man I, hope that, I hope the Messiah comes soon. And he walks into the temple, probably like, all right, here we go. I mean, you know, once in a lifetime thing, this is going to be real cool. He sits down, starts praying. An angel shows up probably would have made him be like, I'm losing it. The Lord hasn't spoken in 400 years. And he sure ain't talking to me. You know, you know what I mean? And the angel shows up and he says, Zachariah, do you, like, just picture this. Not a word from the Lord. 400 years. He wasn't absent. I believe there wasn't ears to hear for 400 years. That's just me. And we know he was present. If you read the, the Jewish history books called the Apocrypha, if you read those, you see that the Lord did great things for Israel in that time, okay? Um, but not a word. The Lord goes, or Zechariah goes in, Gabriel shows up, and the first thing that he says is, Gabriel, the Lord has heard the prayer. The Lord has heard the prayer that you stopped praying years ago. And your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And not only is she going to have a son, your son is going to announce to my people who have waited and waited and waited in hope that the Messiah is here. Your great-granddad didn't see it. Your granddad didn't see it. And some of your parents didn't see it. But I'm here to announce the Messiah's here. And Zachariah says, give me a sign. And he says, no. He says, after 400 years, you know what I'm done putting up with? Doubt. So I'm going to shut up doubt until you see the promise of the Lord fulfilled. And when you see that, I'm going to open up your mouth. And you know what your son and you and everybody else in Israel is going to begin to declare? That the Lord, our God, listen, listen, the, the prayer that Israel prayed on a frequent basis was the verse in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. And here, here comes Jesus in the incarnate, 
a man who was a carpenter for a, son, for a family that was so poor. Mary and Joseph were so poor that had it not been for the gifts from the wise men, had it not been for those gifts, they wouldn't have been able to afford the sacrifices required for somebody that just had a baby. They were broke. So Jesus comes into a poor nobody family of a teenage couple and grows up as a carpenter's son for 30 years doing nothing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He is among you. He is in you. And at 30 years, what does he do? He changes the water into wine at the wedding. And then he goes, John, John puts it, goes straight to the temple and clears it. This is not like what we were told. This, you were, we were told that Mary and Joseph went out into a random field and a barn, and Jesus was born in a barn. Jesus was not born in a barn. Okay, I know that's what all the manger scenes. There was no hotel in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the size of a a pea. It was nothing. There was no hotel in Bethlehem. Okay. There, there was, there was. We would call it two-story houses. On the top floor would be the living quarters, and on the bottom floor would be a workshop. And in that workshop, there would be a manger, and there would be places for animals that were frail and couldn't stand the elements to be kept indoors. That's where, when they go to Bethlehem, and the whole families come in for the census. The top floor is filled specifically for a family about to have a baby. So they say, Mary and Joseph, y'all take the downstairs workshop and y'all can go down there. And that's where Jesus is born. I just ruined a lot of y'all's Christmas and I'm totally sorry about that. But, but you know what I'm saying? We were told that that's, that's the story. That's the story. Jesus was born in a barn out in the middle of nowhere. Praise God. Our sins are about to get covered in blood. Praise God. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we better realize the reason why we were covered in blood. And it was not to satisfy some God who's angry. It was to satisfy the part of us that was angry. Are y'all, are y'all starting to feel this? I, I just, I, I've prayed this whole week that going into this season, that the Lord would allow me to communicate some of the stuff that I've, I've been hearing in the secret place. Because I, I just, can, can you imagine... Can you imagine that? 400 years of nothing and then Messiah. So I'm going to pray and we'll go. Lord, um, I, I just, I don't think we have given you anywhere close to the reward of not just your suffering, of, of all of it. But this season we are. We're going, to be, we're going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We're going to be filled with the knowledge of how you see things. And we're going to be the first fruits of what that looks like for creation to be filled with how you see things. Could, may, what if the past two years, in the past two years, you have made the reality of our world very clear so that as the reality of your world 
begins to invade, there is such a contrast that anybody with a set of eyes and a set of ears can see that this thing is not like what we have built and we need this. What if there's been so much hatred for each other over the past couple of years so that when God is love begins to invade every part of creation, we can tell the difference clearly with what with the world that we have built on hate and the world that he has built on himself who is love and the difference between the two. I mean, what, what, if, this is, what if the church has been so chopped up over the past two years so that the true church could rise up out of the ashes? Why? Because the cut down stump is the holy seed. And so I prophesy that over us right now. I prophesy that not just over our church, over the church of America, that the cut down stump is going to be the holy seed of an awakening in America that leads to an awakening across the globe that says that this God, this God of light, this God of love, this God of ever seeking, ever searching out until he finds personality and nature, that God is the God of Israel. That God is the God now of the Gentiles. And that God is the God that reaches down into the depth of the wolf and the lion and the, the leopard, and he brings it back into a place of peace. That's who this is. What, what if, what if that's what you're doing? I believe it is. I believe it is. I believe there's some individuals in this room that have been cut down to the stump. But I speak over you that the cut down stump is the holy seed. So Lord, I just pray that you would do that work in us. I pray that you would unravel us, unfold us. We trust your touch. Because halfway whole is not enough. It's in your name we all pray. Amen.